Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Become a member today at dfwworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Well, I was telling, um, I think it was Sarah and, and Margaret, that I'm starting to have a love affair with the city of Dallas. It has been an enormous honor to uh, keep visiting uh, this wonderful city. And I was telling my husband this morning, maybe we should move here. <laughs> um, I want to thank uh Jim and the World Affairs Council um, for the extraordinary hospitality. You have an amazing team, so thank you. Uh, I want to also thank uh, Donna Wilhelm for sponsoring this event, as well as Patricia Patterson for being the first lecturer of this endowed series. Um, I also want to thank some friends here. Um, I want to thank uh, that we've just started the Global Fund for Children Dallas Leadership Council. And I want to just thank and honor Margot Perot, who's leading that up for us. And there are a few other members here tonight, including um, Nancy Halbrook, Pat Patricia Patterson, and Sarah Perot. And if I've missed anybody else, forgive me. Ruth Altshuler as well. Um, I just want to start uh, talking. I'm going to go into three parts tonight. One is my personal story. The other is the story itself about the Global Fund for Children. And then the last is really what's next. If you'll let me talk for just a couple of minutes. Um, I started, I, people ask, why did you start the Global Fund for Children? And I say, you know, I had a very interesting childhood experience. I am the daughter of Indian immigrants. My father came here and, and received his PhD in electrical engineering. So I grew up um, with a physicist and my mother, who's an entrepreneur, um, and grew up in eastern North Carolina. Very interesting growing up experience there, as well as spending my summer childhoods in India, as well as traveling with my parents to conferences throughout the world you know, where he would present papers, whether it was communist Poland at the time or Egypt or Indonesia. And it was those experiences as a child that really, I think, made me a global citizen, as I, as I like to call myself. I was one of those very typical Asian kids that was supposed to become a doctor. And I was going to make my parents proud. And I was a neuroscience major. And I was on my way to thinking about going to um, Duke Medical School. Um, and I, I received this fellowship from the Rotary Foundation. And it was, it was a, it's, it's, the, it's the year that changed my life. Um, and I was 22 years old. And I got to uh, India, where I was going to be settled. And I had professors there who said, Maya, if you really want to know and understand people and understand the way they live, the way they think, the way they feel, Get yourself a backpack and start traveling throughout the country and throughout the region. And so for a year, with a backpack, I traveled by bus, yak, truck, airplane, you name it, I did it. And I went throughout India, Nepal, Pakistan, Burma, which is now Myanmar, Sri Lanka, Laos, Vietnam, and Thailand. 
And it was there that I started seeing what I called grassroots innovators, people on the ground with scarce resources doing extraordinary work to better the lives of children, women, and their families. And I'd like to talk, to talk about one story in particular called, I say, my moment of obligation in my life. Um, I, if you've been to India or if you've been to any train station in India, it is a, um, uh, a very dynamic place, very busy. And in a city named Bhubaneswar in northeastern part of India, I got off a train station, and it was a hot day in March. And I was walking, walking out of the train, and I saw something quite magical. I saw 50 kids sitting in a circle learning how to read and write. And there was this extraordinary teacher in the middle with flashcards. And I was just, you know, I was mesmerized. And I speak Hindi, and, and the, the teacher speaks Oriya, but we were able to communicate. And I said, what's going on here? And she said, these children live on and around the train platform. They work, they play, they eat, they sleep, but they don't, and beg, but they don't go to school. So there was an innovator, a teacher in the city who said, instead of bringing children to the school, she was going to bring the school to the train platform. And each day, these children who worked on the trains, who worked selling plastic bottles, whatever they were doing, they would go to school for four hours a day, get a hot meal, and start transitioning them to hopefully get them into formal schooling. And I thought, wow, that's a really neat idea and concept. I said, and I asked her, I said, what does it cost to run one of these schools? And she said, well, it costs about $400 a year for 50 kids, two teachers, and six days of, of, uh, of uh, schooling. And on Saturdays, they get a hot bath, and they learn where the hospital is and where the police station is, so if they get hurt, they know what their rights are. And I never, I did not know a thing about the World Bank, about USAID, about macroeconomics, didn't know a thing. But it was at that moment where I thought, how do you get small amounts of capital into the hands of extraordinary grassroots innovators, social entrepreneurs, where small amounts of capital can do very big things and help them scale their work? So <laughs> I told my parents the bad news. I wasn't going to medical school. I was going to circumvent Duke Medical School and go to their public policy program instead. And um, it was there that I learned about the World Bank and USAID and um, the bigness of foreign aid. And it was there that I started thinking, you know, we need to start a fund, a, the Global Fund for Children, that would actually invest in these grassroots organizations throughout the world where small amounts of money can do big things. My mentor there thought I had a very big, hairy, audacious goal. But Duke um, decided to give me a chair, a desk, and telephone to get my vision started. On top of that, I told him I wanted to start a children's book publishing venture, too, because the books I read in Eastern North Carolina didn't, I couldn't find books about the world, and I think we needed more. And he said, great. Well, I went up to New York, and I went to a private equity group called General Atlantic that funds social entrepreneurs. And there was a cohort of us in our early, mid-20s with big, grand ideas, and they started giving seed capital. And I guess they thought I had enough hallucinogenic optimism um, that they decided to give me $100,000. 
These are the same folks that invested in Windy Cop, Teach for America, City Year, several other uh, extraordinary um, social entrepreneurs um, in, in the United States now that have really built magnanimous organizations. So this is the train platform school that I went to that year. And that's the same teacher who still teaches there. So talk about commitment. So let me go into the vision and what, now let me go into what the Global Fund for Children is and what we do. Our vision is that we envision, all uh, we envision a world where all children grow up to be productive, caring citizens of a global society. To this end, we work to advance the dignity of children and young people worldwide. Our mission is that we make small grants to innovative community-based organizations working with many of the world's most vulnerable children and youth. And we also harness the power of children's books, films, and documentary photography to promote global understanding. So we believe the best way to reach and improve the lives of the world's most vulnerable children is through effective programs and services of CBOs, community-based organizations. And we want to support and strengthen effective and innovative CBOs that will improve the lives of the children, youth, and families they serve at a critical juncture in their growth. So in 1997, we made our first grant um, of $3,000. Where do you think the first grant went? The train platform schools. Very good the train station to the train platform school so they could actually replicate that program and create three or four more schools throughout um, throughout that city on the on the train platforms to date we have provided over 15 million dollars in grants to 375 grassroots organizations in 72 countries benefiting more than 1 million children <laughs> thank you you know, it's, it's lovely that people, you know, clap, but a lot of people kind of frown and say, 15 million, that's not a lot of money. Again, I want us to really rethink and, and about the idea that small amounts of money can do big things. Because to us, the idea that small is beautiful is a big concept to us. And the 375 grassroots organizations, which I'll go into some of our success stories later, 60 of those that have exited from us are national players in their, in their countries and are sustainable. So let me talk about the model very quickly. Um, our grants are small. They're 5,000 to 20,000. We are not, we fund for, for three to eight, nine years, depending on the issue that the organization's working on or the country that they're working on. So if they're working in, in DRC, in the Congo working with child soldiers, we're going to stick with them for a long time because the opportunity for other resources is very difficult and we need to help them over time. In a place like India where, you know, Indians have, have created so many industries, we've been able to leverage additional resources for our partners in India that we're able to exit very quickly within three to four years. So our exit philosophy is quite interesting. We have Four portfolios, learning, enterprise, healthy minds and bodies, and safety. We think those are the four pillars that make a child a productive, you know, a productive, caring citizen of the world. 
We also have an exit strategy. You know, a lot of people talk about the charity model. You know, how you become dependent. How do you become self-sustaining? We actually look at our organizations, each one as an individual specimen, and say, is this organization ready to fly out on its own? And when an organization reaches a certain amount of maturity, and I'll tell you when it, when it actually happens, is when our $10,000 just doesn't matter that much to them anymore. They'll say, well, you know, we're about to get fifty dollars or $60,000 from the ministry, or we're about to get it from another place. The, the, impa the impact is, is a lot larger for them to go for a larger amount. That's one piece. The other piece is how well they've leveraged our grant and how much have they been able to replicate throughout their, their community or their country. We not only are grant maker, we actually have value-added services. So one of the things we do is we leverage additional funding for every, for every dollar we give, we try to leverage another dollar. So a great, a great example is we'll be in um, South Africa. We will work with um, De Beers, for example, De Beers Corporate and say, we've got three organizations that are working with AIDS orphans. Would you be willing to look at them? We're a door opener. And De Beers will end up funding those groups in South Africa. That's a great leverage opportunity. And actually, our partners throughout the world ask us, can you call so-and-so, or can you talk to the ministry in our country? And I'm like, that's a strange concept for us to be calling the ministry in that country. But for some reason, our brand has become um, quite worthy, and people listen to us. The other value-added service is that um, we actually provide some technical assistance. We hire indigenous consultants to help build the capacity of each organization we invest in. So what we know is that there's a very good correlation is when you invest in their capacity and infrastructure, programs get better, and um, you're able to reach more children. And then the third value-added service is we actually bring our partners together throughout the world to learn from each other. And that's a really magical thing, is when you put 40 NGO leaders in southern Africa together, when some have never even been on a plane or never been in a conference before and are able to be with professionals and learn from each other, and then we'll give support where they'll travel to each other's programs to learn and to replicate. And then the third is knowledge generation, which I'll go into a little bit later, about what do we learn? What does this all mean at the end? So let me talk to you about some characteristics of, of our partners themselves. They're grassroots organizations with community-based solutions. They serve the most vulnerable children. They're innovative, entrepreneurial, groundbreaking approach. They are recognized as a local resource and model. They have excellent leadership. I'll tell you, leadership is so important in any organization. I can, we can go in and see a rocky program and a great idea and great leadership and we'll invest. But if we see a great program and the rocky leadership, we're a little less inclined to, to make the bet. So let me talk to you about a couple of the success stories that we've, that we've been through. Or had or have had happened to us. This is a wonderful group um, which I called SSS in Bangladesh. We had a program officer, and I'd like to talk about our. We actually go out and scout for groups. We don't take proposals and sit in Washington D.C. and wait for stacks and look through them and read. 
most of our POs who speak a total of about 27 languages are out on the road 60% of the time. Uh, they are brilliant. They have lived in these countries. And they are, um, I'd like to liken it to a high school baseball coach who sleeps at a lot of ho uh, Motel 8s and eats at a lot of Denny's restaurants to find the next Babe Ruth. This is what our POs do. Um, and we had a PO who was in Bangladesh, and she started talking to some, some village members. They said, she says, well, how do kids go to school if they're living on the river banks? And it's very hard to go to school. She's, and someone said, somebody has started a boat school. Somebody has started a boat school that goes through the riverways, and each time they dock at a village, girls and boys will come and, and take classes. And she says, I have to find this boat school. So she started going to different villages, and she found this school, one boat school, and this young man who had graduated from the University of Dhaka who was an architect major. And he said, he, she show, he, he showed the boat school to her, and, and not only was it a school, but it was solar-powered, and there was a computer. <laughs> okay, we ended up, after that, making a bet and funding four more boat schools. Interestingly, their organizational budget in 2003 was $44,000 when we met them. In 2007, it reached to $1.5 We exited last year. We actually also nominated them for the Gates Access to Learning Award, which they won. They won the million-dollar prize from Bill and Melinda Gates, and they were able to create 80 more boat schools. Okay. Interestingly, this is what innovation's about. Think about whether, you know, about climate change. Bangladesh is starting to flood enormously. What he's realized about these boat schools is that they've become climate shelters. When it floods, families get onto these boats. So he's now starting to, to, re, to rethink his concept that a lot of his villages are going to be underwater. So he's creating these climate shelters throughout Bangladesh. There is now a documentary, a movie being made through Sundance on his work. Afghan Institute of Learning, um, something very close to my heart. Um, all of them are close to my heart. This in particular um, with what's going on in Afghanistan. In 1997, I had the enormous pleasure of meeting an extraordinary woman named Sakina Akubi who uh, was a refugee from Afghanistan to the United States and received her higher education here. She went back to Pakistan when the Taliban came into power and started something called the Secret Homeschools for Girls. I met Sakina at a conference um, in 1996 or 1997, and she said, Maya, I need $5,000 to educate 600 girls secretly in Kabul and Jalalabad. <coughs> And I said, well, what does that mean, secret homeschools? And she said, I'm going over the border. I'm, I'm, I'm secretly taking textbooks, crayons, pencils, paper, and I'm teaching mothers and, and teachers how to create a secret homeschool that girls can come in at different times so they won't be murdered or killed. And I said, where else are you getting funding? She goes, nobody else will fund it. UNICEF won't touch this, interestingly. They wanted to, she said they're wanting to work with the Taliban to change policy. She says, that's great, but I don't have time. I have to save girls now. I said, fine, we will invest 
So we kept investing. She, her name kept going out there. And then September 11th happened. And the day after September 11th, I called her in Pakistan. And she said, Maya, I can't believe you're calling me. And I said, why? She says, well, I don't think anybody would want to help. I said, no, 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 no. It's more important than ever that we help. What do you need from us now? And she says, I need to start schools for boys. Boys are out on the street. They're being recruited into extreme schools. Let me create schools that will teach peace, tolerance, science, mathematics, literature, and the Quran. I said, fabulous. So we started investing in that. We funded them um, for quite for five years, and we gave them a sustainability award. She was a, a got twenty five thirty thousand dollar organization when we met. Today, she's at about a one point five million dollar organization, probably a little more. She serves four hundred thousand women and children with education and health today. It's it's extraordinary. She is the largest NGO. She will not take government money. She won't touch it. Um, she is doing this with such ingenuity. She is putting her life on the line. And this past year, she won the Henry Kravis Award for Leadership, a $250,000 prize um, that we were part of helping her initiate to get. So there's also a documentary that's being featured on their work um, by Sundance. And I don't know if you have heard about Nicholas Kristof's new book, um, but he mentions AIL in, in his book about the best investment America could have ever made in Afghanistan in terms of development was probably AIL. So um, it's a great success story for us in, in being able to have invested in her, in her work and her vision. Another great organization in Africa, um, I can go through this forever, guys, but this is uh, the last one, um, is the Ethiopian Books and Children's Educational Foundation. And one of the things that really inspired Salome Lemma, who's this, our brilliant program officer who came, who grew up in Ethiopia, came to this country when she was 10, not speaking a word of English, and graduated from Stanford and Harvard, and now in, the, in, in service with us, she found this organization, and illiteracy is quite high. And she found this social entrepreneur, um, Johannes, who basically was a librarian and decided, in the United States actually, got in a, came from Ethiopia, got a master's in library science, went back, and decided to start this organization. One of the things that I love about it is that they have donkey mobile libraries. <laughs> it is the most interesting thing. There are so many rural places that children don't have libraries they can't get to. So there is a person who rides a donkey with a caravan of donkeys with books and goes to each village and sets up a library and children check out books on the mobile library, on the donkey library. It's absolutely genius. And he's taking the resources he has to, to bring literacy to children who otherwise would not have it. If you watch, did any of you watch the CNN Heroes? He was on it, and we helped nominate him for that. So, um, and he was, he's very passionate about his work. So now I come to the so what question. 
So what if the Global Fund for Children has invested $15 million in 375 groups in 72 countries? How do we really know if we've made an impact? And this is something that's, you know, evaluation can cost millions and millions and millions of dollars. But our, our board and donors started saying, Maya, you have such extraordinary data. We have to build a metrics framework that really helps you frame the picture even, even strong, uh, stronger. So this is our case statement. The Global Fund for Children identifies emerging and promising community-level organizations with an adjusted investment, grant investment quotient and provides them with valuable support and strengthening services. We have an average organizational capacity score so that these groups can directly serve vulnerable children, total number of beneficiaries with effective programs, demonstrated program effectiveness. GFC contributes to its grantee partners' long-term and sustainable growth, funds leveraged, and provides adaptable models and learning for global action, visibility leveraged. So these are all the things we measure to know if we're making an impact. And I'll make, give you one example. I'll talk about the average organizational capacity score. And a lot of funders out there are really interested in this, and we're trying to create this as an online tool. But what we're doing is we try to find organizations at the nascent or emerging stage. We want to try to get them at the strengthening and thriving stage. The key domains that we measure are planning, fundraising, governance, human resource development, financial management, monitoring, learning, and evaluation, external relations, and IT. Our POs will measure it. The NGO will measure themselves. We start put that measurement together, and then we start seeing where are the weaknesses and where can GFC be the most helpful in helping them get stronger. Our hope is when they exit us, they're at the strengthening or thriving stage but we always get them at the nascent emerging stage. And the score is really interesting that we've developed. And if anyone's interested, I can give you all of that online to look at. It's, it's quite a lot of fun. So a lot of groups are, are looking at metrics and, and, and thinking about knowledge. And you know, one of the things I have to say is metrics are very contextual. I think the stories are what captures the heart and, and, the, and the spirit, but we also have to capture our minds as well. Um, you know, they have a wide range and ability to capture good data. So it's a soft, soft science. And I think for us, it's a longitudinal study of what we've learned over 25, 30, 40, 50 years. I'm very interested in 30 years, what have happened to these groups that we initially invested in? So let me come back to the rethinking foreign aid question. 15 years ago, what I was thinking about have now started coming out in some books. Um, the White Man's Burden, how many of you have read this or heard of this book? Um, it's between the searchers and the planners. And I really think Global Fund for Children is in the searcher category. Um, and now there's the new book, um, by Ms. Moya on dead aid. And I don't agree with everything in the book, but she has made a very, very important point about how we must invest in indigenous people in Africa um, to really build sustainability. And that foreign aid really has been quite disastrous in that continent. Um, 
for us, you know, I'm starting to think maybe I need to write a book too, uh, <laughs> which I'm thinking about. But these are some books that are out that are really starting to challenge the status quo of, of aid. So our future vision of the organization is we want to maintain our current business methodology, but we want to provide $10 million to approximately 600 NGOs globally on an annual basis. We want to be the largest network of youth-serving organizations in the world. We want Nobel laureates among our grantee partners. And we want to be a real leader in, in um, metrics and really being able to measure the effectiveness of our work. And I'm hoping that that's going to happen in, in the, hopefully in the next six to seven years at Global Fund for Children, at least the 10 million piece. We're working towards it. Um, I could keep talking forever, but I really like to open it for questions and make it a discussion. So I'm going to put it up to you. Um, her question is, what do I believe of Greg Mortensen's effort, who's the author of Three Cups of Tea, Central Asia Institute? I think he's a hero. I think he's done extraordinary work. Um, I think in the places where he's building these schools, it's very difficult to find civil society organizations to partner with. So he's actually partnering with communities. The question I would probably pose to Greg, which I have, is sustainability over the long term. What's going to happen to these schools in five, ten years? 15 years. And that's the monitoring piece. I think it's, it's going to be really crucial. But he's, he's a hero. We have a question from Alex Baker from Central High School. A very good question, Alex. How closely do you work with foreign governments, and what if any kind of resistance do you encounter? Sure. That's a great question. Um, we actually leverage foreign assistance so we will go into a country knowing that the World Bank has made a loan on education, and we know how to be able to leverage that. We don't personally take government assistance. Um, we think government assistance in those countries are very good for scale purposes for their work. Um, and what was the second part of the question? What resistance? Uh, well, it depends on the type of group we're supporting. Um, Sometimes we're supporting some groups that aren't looked favorably by a government. DRC's one, where we're working with children who are child soldiers. You know, we go into communities that can be very, very unsafe sometimes. And these NGO leaders are really putting their lives on the line. So we really try to be as much as possible to be good, on good terms with, with all the governments we're in. But if you're trying to build democracy and civil society, sometimes you're going to run against Along those lines, what type of support or communication do you have with the U.S. government? Have you had meetings with high-level officials in our government? Um, interestingly, we're starting to. We have really put our, our nose to, to the desk and worked very hard to really make sure our model worked before we started talking to the government. I will say that um, President Bush's work with PEPFAR that money actually has reached a lot of our grassroots partners in Africa, which is great. Uh, 
former Secretary Rice's work on Condi Rice on trafficking and prostitution. Many of our NGA partners were part of that policy discussion that she was working on. And right now with President Obama's administration, I actually was part of, um, a trans part of the transition team looking at their new Office of Social Innovation, which is helping to look at innovation domestically of nonprofits, but really being part of a discussion on the global side of how do we do that. Other questions from the floor? Yes, sir. Try to stay small. I'm sorry. Um, the question is: is how do you uh, keep being entrepreneurial and um, not be bureaucratic um, in in the work that we're doing? Such and the counter example was maybe the World Bank. Um, and our board tries to keep us on our toes. Um, I think being small is good. I think. Also seeing different program officers come through that you're not, you know, after six years, I'd like to see a program officer maybe go do something else because you start seeing things the same way. So you get fresh new blood coming into the organization. I think that's very important. Um, so I hope I answered your question. Your business model is similar to Ashoka. I know Bill Drayton very well. Ashoka, she said, um, your model is very close to Ashoka's model. Ashoka was started by Bill Drayton, who funds social entrepreneurs, individuals. So he gives them, a, he gives them fellowships. The interesting part for us at, G, at Global Fund, when I started studying Ashoka's model in graduate school, was you can fund the fellow all you want, but you have to fund the organization. There are extraordinary leaders that actually do the programmatic work that you need to invest in. So I felt there was a real niche for us to really look at the, the investment in the organization and the children they serve versus the leader itself. Lot, many of our NGO partners, almost maybe a quarter, are Ashoka Fellows. And, and the other question I had is, you said something that sometimes you don't invest a good model, but it's not good leadership. How do you determine that leadership? Um, Referencing, uh, you ask children, uh, one of the best ways we know how is um, we actually ask children in the community. I, you know, we actually say to a street kid, have you heard of this organization? And they're like, yes, it's very good, we all go there. Or have you heard of it? And they're like, no, 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 don't go there. They hit kids, we don't go there. So that's a really interesting piece. And then the third is a sniff test. I, I really, I, if, you just have a guttural feeling about people you make bets on. And you can do all, all of the due diligence. I mean, what we say is the due diligence we do for $5,000 is probably the due diligence you do for a $10 million grant. I mean, the amount that we put into it. But 25% it, but of that is this guttural reaction of a sniff test, or are we going to invest in this organization and this person? We have another question from Ben Martin, and I'd like to leverage it a little bit. He said, how can people from the community, such as high school students, help in this global issue? And now at the World Affairs Council, we have some 42 junior World Affairs Councils on high school campuses. What type of project could we develop that might be useful? Well, um, Pat said I'm on a board um, called Youth Philanthropy Worldwide. It's now called New Global Citizens. We're a major partner of theirs. They have started creating high school teams throughout the country 
who actually partner with the grassroots organization of Global Fund for Children and learn about that NGO. Sometimes students go and visit it. They, um, and also learn about the issues affecting that country and raise money for it. And they have been extraordinarily effective. So I would say to the high school students, look up newglobalcitizens.org, contact me, but we are a very strategic partner with, with the high schools on that. We participated last year with UNICEF on a similar project. Good, good. Yes, ma'am. Maya, the people who work with you, who go out and find mm -hmm. projects, I know for Teach for America, people who work with them go out to schools, you know, those are sort of a rigorous application yeah. process. What do you recruit, or do the people find you, and is there some kind of application process? Absolutely. Um, for for one program officer position um, that we recently did uh, last year, uh, we got 500 applications. Okay, the demand is so, this, there are so many people who want to be doing global work and, in, you know, and providing support to grassroots organizations. We are thrilled at the quality and talent that is coming out of the institutions of higher learning now. Um, Languages is critical. Having overseas experience is absolutely a must in the in those countries. And what is the average age? Is they right out of college? No, no. They are average age about 30, 20, 30, 32. I mean, this work and this travel is hard. I mean, I did it. And you can only sustain it for five, six, seven years. Um, I'm talking about being on hard buses with chickens. You know, it's just, it's, it's tough. And it's because you're trying to get to those groups that you can't find normally. And um, so we try to get people out of graduate school but have had work experience but actually all have graduate degrees. Most of them are um, from Harvard, the Kennedy School of Government, or Princeton Woodrow Wilson School. I'm very um, grateful for what you are doing because uh, being from Rwanda, oh. 10 days ago I was in Goma and uh, working in uh, some parts of you know, Sudan, therefore most of the, these innovators are not known. Right. And you find that people who know, uh, who can reach an internet and uh, find you, they are probably not the best innovators. <laughs> so how do you find those best? Well, like I said, we're scouts. So we go out. I mean, we fund in Rwanda, actually. And we ask community members. You know, we will go into places without having any recommendations from anybody because we don't want to be influenced in any way. And we'll start asking people and asking children, where do you go? Who is out there? Who have you heard of? And then after we meet that person and really understand their work, we start asking around as well, who are, who are some of your other supporters, you know, things like that. That's, that's how we go about searching for people. But we don't take applications, for example. We do have, I do, do need to say, we do have, we are democratic, we do have an online um, uh, one-page, very simple application process where we probably get six to 7,000 a year that we sift through, and we maybe get two or three diamonds in the rough that we will actually go out and look at pretty carefully. That's wonderful. Uh, you mentioned partnering with the uh, 
uh, grassroots group. Uh, how about partnering with some of our more successful initiatives in this country and the developing country? Uh, the Mercy Ships, the World Heart Organization, that sort of thing. Um, you know, we, the Mercy Ships is one that I'd really like to think about talking to because of how they could partner with some of our partners when they're working in some of the countries in Africa. That, you know, some just have a very different business model in terms of really hiring lots of, uh, what, not hiring enough local people to do the work. So we're very, very careful about that. Um, and sometimes the big, big development organizations don't want to talk to the small folks like us. I'll be, I mean, I'm, I'm being quite honest with you here. How, and so as we become quite, when we become bigger, I think there can be better partnership opportunities. But we're very, very particular about who we want to partner with and who's going to be great partners for our, our partners in the developing world. Mercy Ships is a great example, though, that's actually doing some excellent work um, actually, it was in, off of Liberia recently um, doing work. The world, you know, there are a hundred of them. Yeah. Because of mercy Right. Now, question over here, please. Um, yes, sir. Yes, as your, these organizations that you develop, as they reach the sustainability phase with these million dollar budgets, do you impart on them any kind of theory or controls as to how they can prevent being bureaucratic or corrupt yeah. in the future? I'll tell you one of the biggest things we've learned is that organizations have to build capacity to take large amounts of money. Because if they don't have it, bad things happen. And we have seen that in a couple of cases where a donor gets very, very excited and decides they want to put two or three million dollars into an organization. And they just don't have the capacity to absorb it. It's absorbative capacity. And um, they've, one organization in particular has been charged, we know, of corruption for, because of that reason. So we try to impart knowledge of if somebody offers you $200,000 and your budget's only 60000 spread it out over four years. You know, think about those sorts of mechanisms versus trying to grow all at once in one year. So we try to impart that sort of knowledge through our conferencing that we do. A friend of mine did a study in India in an Indian village uh, using AID money. And in the study, he arranged uh, with the young girls of the village to give them several rupees every month that they turned it in urine that indicated they were not pregnant. And of course, the women, the young women, liked this very much and uh, they got the money and it stayed unburdened. Uh, but the men, of course, in the village did not like it at all. They wanted more sums to aid the family and the work. So after the study ended, the, uh, the whole project sort of ended. So I just wondered a, a similar kind of question about what has happened in your uh, work in Afghanistan where you have educated a bunch of young women who then have new skills but who are then even greater a threat to the government or to the uh, extremists. And do they stay protected? Uh, and how so? And also, how do you keep the programs going? I mean, it may be sustainable when you're done with them, but can that, can that last? Anything to sum up? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, 
I'm, I'm just going to take the Afghanistan piece of it, is, is the issue that women are be being educated and are getting a lot of skills, and is this being a threat to society, to Afghan society, and to the Taliban itself, and what's happening there. And what I know from Afghan Institute of Learning and, and two of our other partners in Afghanistan is, yes, it is dangerous. And it's getting worse. But I think women are very courageous and girls are very courageous to be educated. And I think every day Sakina and her staff of hundreds that work um, have death threats and they continue to do their work. There was a very, very interesting article if you read in the New York Times about the issue of human migration of Afghan youth. Did anyone see that? It's about that Afghanistan is losing its youth because they're all migrating to Europe illegally because there are no opportunities, because they want a job, they want to be able to work, they want to be able to have a sustainable livelihood and it's just <coughs> not safe in Afghanistan, so they're risking their lives to come to Europe. And we see human migration as being a huge issue throughout the world. And we know this in the United States, from Latin America to, to the United States, that people want a better life. So my question is, how do you make a better life in those countries and provide opportunities in those countries so they, they prosper in their, in, in, in their own countries? And I think GFC really works with NGOs in, in our enterprise portfolio where we're giving um, youth and micro-enterprise funds, where youth have gone as far as they can in their education, but they have so much passion and intellect, they want to start their own businesses. Let's try to give them that opportunity to do that. Um, because that's going to be our biggest, that's one of the issues that also keeps me up at night, is the human migration issue that's going on throughout the world now. I wish we had time for all these questions, we have time for just two more. You're a student? Can big, aid ever, can big aid ever work and can it be more effective? <laughs> yes and no. That's a safe answer. It's a safe answer. Um, no, not the way it's, 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 it's uh, designed as it is. Yes, if we have really visionary leadership that really rethinks how we want to give aid and how it's distributed and how we make governments accountable for the aid that we give. But that's, that's, a, real, that's a real shift in thinking and it's gonna take a long time. I have faith it can happen. But in the meantime, we need organizations like the Global Fund for Children. <laughs> Take the last question. Yes, ma'am. Can you give us an example of a program in the U.S.? Sure. So we're global. So one of the things I made a commitment was that if we were global, we cared about children in our own backyards. In Washington, D.C., we invest in Native American communities. I'll tell you an interesting story. Um, Hurricane Katrina happened, and we had a major um, donor who called us and said, you have a business methodology that works in the developing world. I want you to use this in the Louisiana, the, the region that's been affected. 
They said, well, we don't really bond outside of DC. And this donor started barking at me and said, you're telling me that you have this business methodology <coughs> that works in, in, in India, but you can't use it here? Come on. So we did it. And we found some extraordinary groups working um, small grassroots organizations that had not been touched by the Community Foundation of, of New Orleans, the big money coming in from, from the feds or the state. We actually helped leverage additional funding. The, the stuff that we were funding was on psychosocial issues because children were traumatized by water and were not able to go to school. So one of the things we ended up doing was we actually ended up doing a conference of our partners in the Hurricane Katrina region, tsunami, and Pakistani earthquake and brought them together in India. And these partners in that region from, from Louisiana had more in common with the partners in the developing world than they did with anyone else in the United States. What was interesting is the head of dream catchers in India that works on psychosocial issues dealing with water and children, we actually gave a grant that she came to New Orleans for two months and actually trained NGO leaders about her methodology of how to work on traumatized children in water. Um, children weren't taking baths because they were so scared of water. Think about that. I mean, it's, and the same things were happening with children in the tsunami. Um, so that is a sort of cross-learning and cross-fertilization. And um, we, we've gotten calls now to think about really looking for grassroots groups in the United States. And it's something that I always consider in the back of my mind um, that if we can do it elsewhere, why can't we do it here? You know, I think everyone in this room shares your concern, but not everyone has acted. And we really marvel um, and commend you and are just, you know, so proud of, of, of what you've accomplished with the Global Fund. And the way that all of us can help tonight is back there we have our friends from Borders, and there are several books that are, I guess, really for children. Um, and, and the proceeds and the proceeds uh, support the Global Fund for Children. So I hope all of you will look at this. Christmas is not that far away for grandchildren and yeah. others, or children, grandchildren hopefully someday, Terrell. So um, thank can you all. Can I say one, one sure quick can. thing? Um, we have 28 children's books in the marketplace. We have 2 million readers. So that's a social enterprise piece of our work. I just want to make one um, thing for you to look out for is we have a children's book coming out called Nazarene Secret School. It's a beautifully illustrated book about the real true life story of a little girl who dreams of going to school but goes to a secret home school in Afghanistan mm -hmm. and how her parents disappear. It's coming out in November, so look, for, look out for that. We'll it's going to be in bookstores everywhere. Thank you. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.